You're listening to Think 100%, the coolest show on climate change. Hosted by Rev Yearwood, Mustafa Santiago Ali, and me, Antonique Smith. Each week, we host important conversations with innovators, policymakers, cultural influencers, and movement leaders who are leading the way to a 100% clean energy and just world. And before I even go a step further, before I take one step, before I thank our folks at Pacifica and PFW, I got to say something. Man, hold on. Did I hear a new opening track for Think 100%? Hey! Yeah, that was kind of lit. What? Is that you, Antonique Smith? That is me. When do you find time <laughs> yes, to do I, all I, this I, stuff? Our song is lit. Man, man. <laughs> I would I, I would say run it back, but I'd be afraid to have it. We well, I don't know if they would run it back or not. But if, <laughs> so folks gotta, that's why it's so hot in DC today. <laughs> that's why it's man. Well, folks, thank man. Listen, you just heard an original opening, and since we already had you for a closing, I guess it all works together. So, man, I just yes. want to thank the team here at WPFW and Pacifica for hosting us in their studio. We love you all. Yes, we love y'all. And check out our new website at think100.info. The site features some of our favorite videos from 2018, more about your Think 100% hosts, official Think 100% swag, and more. Also, be sure to subscribe and rate our Think 100% iTunes podcast. Give us five stars, y'all. And keep up with us at Think 100 Show on both Twitter and Instagram. And we want everybody to know that this is our special State of the Climate Show today. We are broadcasting right before the President Trump's State of the Union. And we are about to dive into this critical issue of diversity and environmental in relationship to the foundations and organizations that are in that space with some expert guests that we have tonight. And in part two of this episode, we'll also have some real talk about what is really happening with the State of the Union. And we'll have some special guests. Yeah, no, this is a very, very important show. Um, I'll lead off with some lighthearted just just with our new, please, our new song. Anthony said you can definitely go to think100.info to get more information. But we are so blessed. To be joined by Whitney to my a returning guest, actually. That's mm-hmm. what I love. I like I like that. And Erica West, who's representing Green 2.0 to talk diversity and the environmental movement. So before we are joined by our amazing guest, I want to remind everyone to call in. This is very, very important. You can call in at 202-588-0893. That's 202-588-0893. This is your show, and I mean that. This is your. This is the people's show. So please call in. We really want to hear from you on this. this. is a very important discussion that we're going to have for a number of reasons. So you can call in at 202-588-0893. So now let's get started with our co-host. I think, you know, we have it. I mean, we. I think we got her up in speed. Antonique, what is happening in the movement right now uh, that people need to pay attention to? Well... You know, I'm always Debbie down a moment at the top of the show, but it is all good. It's stuff that we need to talk about. So, Rev and Mustafa, all I need to say is the climate crisis is real and it is here in force. Over the last week, we have seen record lows with brutally cold weather from the polar vortex with temperatures dropping to, listen to this, below 
50 degrees below zero. So I'm used to like 50 degrees, but 50 <laughs> degrees below zero, which is unbelievable in some parts of the country. I mean, we're not in Antarctica. Like, this is America. 50 degrees below zero is crazy in some parts of the country. And dozens of people losing their lives, which is like crazy. As many have been focused on the bitterly cold, bitter cold weather across the country, we should also point out that in 2019, which is only five weeks old, we have set thus far in 2019 33 temperature stations in the southern hemisphere, where it is currently summer. We have experienced all-time record high temperatures. Most of these temperature records are found in Australia, with a few in the Reunion Islands, Chile, and Namibia. Mm. This is definitely not a joke. Yeah. Not a joke, it's not a game, as, as, as Rev would say. Literally, our existence hangs in the balance, and our most vulnerable are the ones who will be hit first and worst. So I'm sorry to say that is worst news we could, we could open with, but, you know, and I don't think, Mustafa, I'm about to ask you a question. I don't think it's going to get much better, but Mustafa, <laughs> what should we expect from the president during the State of the Union tonight? Thanks, Anthony. <laughs> there are a couple of things, you know, we just want to be real brief uh, in relationship to the State of the Union tonight. So the first one, I guess most folks will be able to realize is that we expect more climate denial, more climate denial, more climate denial uh, as the climate crisis continues to grow and the president continues to be disconnected from what people are actually asking for. And that is the protection of their lives. We also should expect from the president to demonize migrants as they try to escape economic and climate chaos in their home countries, because sometimes folks are disconnected from the fact that there have been droughts that have been pushing people forward. We should also expect the president to talk about jobs and negate the fact that the fastest growing economic opportunities are actually in wind and solar. And Rev and I and you, Antonique, and our guests have talked about that time and time again. Mm -hmm. We should also expect him to talk about health care without connecting it to those who and continue to be impacted from mm -hmm. both pollution and the impacts of climate change. So you can't talk about health care and not talk about the needs that exist in that space. And we also need to understand that he is going to be continually disconnected from what's happening in everyday people's lives. He likes to spend time at Mar-a-Lago and some other places, but we never see him actually in people's community, Mrs. Ramirez's community or Mr. Johnson's community. But you know what? We are blessed because we have a show that is focused on the state of our climate. And Rev, why don't you take it and move us down the road on this new show? So, yes, yes, indeed. Everyone, don't forget to go to think100.info uh, for more information about these and other important issues. Um, and for all of our past shows, it's be very important. You can go there and check out all of that information. So let's get started with our incredible two hours special. I think, you know, Mustafa, you mentioned the state of the climate. I think that this show is probably probably better labeled as the state of the climate movement. Yep. Um, it's probably what I would say is what we are going to dive into. And I want to say one thing before you mentioned State of the Union. Um, elections do have consequences. And I do want to say that um, I am also, while, you know, Mustafa, you are right on point. This president will say a lot of different things this evening. But the one thing that he will look out there and see a sea of amazing woman leaders in white um, who will be out there uh, representing and so many new people who will be in office in that in that aspect. So I think that's a, that that's just an important piece that we recognize that 
for folks to keep hope alive. And that's just my addition there for you, Antonique, that we know that we that we are we are definitely going to keep hope alive. And that's also why we are going to talk tonight about everything from the lack of diversity in the Green Movement to Governor Northam and his lack of action to protect vulnerable communities in Virginia. So you may want to text all your friends right now and tell them to tune in to Think 100% the coolest show on climate change. And everyone, please call in to this very incredibly important conversation at 202-588-0893. If you're listening on the Think 1% podcast, then we are breaking this two-hour uh, special into two episodes. This is part one, and make sure you listen to part two uh, for the more in-depth discussion and personal stories from important leaders of color in our movement. So now, let's let's welcome to Think 1% Green 2.0, uh, Whitney Tobey and Erica West. How are y'all doing? Good, thank you. So before we get started, let me share a few of my concerns. I continue to see antiquated environmental organizations and foundations where race continues to be their tripwire. And I always say that race is a tripwire for the climate movement. And when I look around, I see very few faces of color at these organizations and foundations. And it breaks my heart that we have a movement that wants everyone to transition from fossil fuels, but our biggest environmental institutions and foundations can't seem to transition from a 20th century paradigm where diversity is optional and people of color continue to be marginalized by the very movement that's supposed to be uplifting and protecting all people. Something has got to change, and this is why I'm excited to have Whitney and Erica on the show with us today. Welcome to our show. So, Whitney, let's uh, start off with you for some of the new folks who are listening to the show for the first time. Can you talk about how and why Green 2.0 got started? Absolutely. And thank you again, Mustafa and Reverend Yearwood. So Green 2.0 was really started based on an experience. And so our founder and chair, Robert Rabin, walked into a green group, one of the largest environmental NGOs, galas, and looked around the room and realized that the only people he saw of color were the wait staff mm. and said, uh. huh, why is that? Is this, did I just walk into an anomalous room or is this a more pervasive experience? And so as a result, he decided to sort of found Green 2.0 and try to figure out, was this an anomaly or was this consistent? And so we had the privilege of commissioning Dr. Dorsita Taylor out of the University of Michigan to conduct our first ever report to finally say, like, how many are we actually talking about here? And so in 2014, she produced this wonderful report that said, all right, we're talking about between 12 and 16 percent of the staff at these major NGOs, foundations, and government agencies who focus on the environment are people of color. When you compare that, obviously, to the workforce, <laughs> we're talking about 38, 39, bordering on 40% people of color now. So there's a huge gap. So then Green 2.0 said, all right, now that we know our baseline, let's now push people towards that ever-changing number and the ever-changing demographics of the U.S. So we will continue to put out annual reports around what are the statistics of especially the top 40 NGOs and foundations to say, where are you in relation to the demographics of the U.S. so that you can get the best thinking, the best minds, the most innovation, and also the people who are engaged in communities mm. in this work. 
Yeah, Whitney, tell us about how it's a myth that people of color don't care about the environment. <laughs> well, you've got at least four of us, including you, me, five <laughs> people who do, right? So that's the right. first start, right? <laughs> but it's, it's also, in part, I think it's been a framing issue, actually, often, which is the environmental movement is framing it usually in big, huge policy issues around clean air, clean water. But communities of color have always cared about those things. Mm-hmm. We just frame it around health, public health, our own health. Do we have air that our kids can breathe? You know, I've got a kid with asthma, you know, mm-hmm. knowing that we had an orange quality day yesterday was a concern and a concern for lots of families of color. And so in framing a lot of these issues is around people. Do I have healthy, clean food? Do I have organic food that isn't going to cost me $10 mm-hmm. <laughs> for a stick of asparagus? You know, right. <laughs> do I have right. the clean air that I need? It's not a, a question of whether or not people of color have cared about this. We've cared about this for generations, and even going back to especially to Native and Indigenous peoples, they cared about the land. They took care of the land. It was their world. Hmm. And so it's really reframing the narrative, which we've often failed to center people of color around, which is we've cared about these things every day, all day. I think that's why they brought African slaves also to this country, because they needed expertise in being able to move forward. So we're not going to go too far on that one, but I'm just saying we'll real talk for you. No, no, no. I think uh. it, I think that's, imp- that's important. So Mustafa, um, I want you to take my, my question for Erica, because I have a follow-up to that. So go ahead and take my question. Sure. Erica, we're going to get you in the mix here. Okay. Yeah, all right. Erica looked like she's a little nervous over there. Go ahead and shake it out real quick. No, I'm ready. <laughs> In corporate American companies often use the excuse that they can't find talented people of color. And sometimes they go so far as to suggest people of color don't want to be in the industry. We know that this is an excuse, but what is troubling is that we hear from our own environmental organizations at all levels, you know, similar messages suggesting maybe people of color don't have the time to do this work because of all the other issues they're up against or just Uh tell us you know, what's going on here with these excuses that that are fundamentally incorrect? Well, I think one of the things that's ironic is that when you don't have people of color in an organization and you make assumptions about what it is that they, quote unquote, want to focus on or care about, right, in a vacuum and you don't have any perspective on that, um, we could start there, right? So lacking all information, you assume something, Um and then just the reality that it is it is the height of bias to say that people of color don't this or that, right? Mm-hmm. Like, ultimately, at the end of the day, we are people. We want to go into corporate America. We want to go into progressive movements. We want to lead. We want to lead in strategy. Mm-hmm. We want to be tacticians. We want to be politicians. We want to be pollsters. We want to be all the things, right? And because we are not reflected in those spaces, it doesn't mean we don't want to be there. It's a basic access question. And we had a saying at Howard University about excuses being tools of the incompetent to build monuments of nothingness, right? Right. These are are organizations, whether they're NGOs, foundations, corporations that accomplish 
huge feats every day. Some of them are wild failures because they don't have people of color and diversity of thought at the table, mm -hmm. but they're spending billions of dollars mm -hmm. in many cases. Um, you know, we know that the environmental movement is funded at over a billion dollars a year mm -hmm. in these major NGOs that we look at um, to run program and to put policy forward. And when you assume that people of color will not inform those things um, mm. strategically and will not carry forward things like what Whitney was talking about in terms of our own experiences and how we view those things, um, you, you're making a choice, right? To say that people of color aren't interested, it is an excuse, but it's really, really empty mm -hmm. because there's so much evidence out there to the contrary. And at the end of the day, I think people are ultimately making decisions about spaces that they want to hold, don't necessarily want to share. There aren't that many seats in the C-suite. There aren't that many seats on our board. And if we diversify and we create situations in which we have to have competition, uh, we're sharing our resources, we're sharing our space, right? And people don't always do it consciously. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they do. Sometimes it's an unconscious bias. Um, but we're too far along in 2019 to have that stand as an excuse anymore. Rev, can I, let me ask this question. No, definitely. Quick. So, Whitney, Erica, let, you know, the 2014 report that Dr. Darcita Taylor pulled together did a fantastic job. When that report was pulled together, were there any African-American or Latinos leading any of our green organizations? So, not African-Americans or Latinos at the time. Right. <clears throat> now, there are a couple. Mm -hmm. um, but I'd say um, neither of them are African-American or Latino. Right. Um, and so it's been really interesting. And right now, actually, yesterday, we're going to lose an Asian. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Rhea Sue from NRDC is stepping down in June. And she was one of very few women, but one of only three women of color in the top 40 NGOs. Mm. And so, you know, the downside is we're losing her. The upside is NRDC has a huge opportunity. Mm-hmm. To continue that trend and to make it happen. But that's one huge gap. Foundations, similarly. Smaller foundations are making some progress. And I can think of three in the last year that have actually made some really interesting gains. Yeah. Um, you know, the Serdna Foundation, uh, the Libra Foundation, mm -hmm. and the Meyer Memorial Trust have all picked people of color yeah. recently. And we'll dive into that a little bit as, as we move forward. But I, I think it's important for folks to realize that, as Erica said, you know, we're talking about a billion dollar set of, you know, I want to say billion dollar uh, movement, if you will. Yeah. Annually. Um, yes, annually. <laughs> and uh. as Rev and I talk about, how is it that you can't find uh, folks of color? Uh, and, and, you know, we should get into also, you know, the trust factor and mm -hmm. a number of the other dynamics that Rev always raises um, when we have these really insightful conversations. Well, no, no, Mustafa, you're, you're right on it. I actually, I, I just want to take a step back. And mm -hmm. for those who are tuning in, if you're tuning in to Think 100%, the coolest show on climate change, and we're having a conversation in regards to the state of the climate movement. Um, and really, we're talking about diversity. We're here in the studio with both Whitney and Erica from Green 2.0. If you have not read that report, please go to Green 2.0. Um, and check out that report and the history behind that um, report. Um, so before I, 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 we dive into your question, Antonique, um, this, a, this is a, a random, very easy softball question. Or maybe maybe it's not, but um, Whitney, Erica, is climate change real? 
Yes. yes. <laughs> um, um, actually, on the other side, Mustafa and Antonique is climate change real. Oh, without a doubt. Heck yeah. Okay. So the impacts of what climate change is doing has already done. As far as folks who have died in Puerto Rico, folks who have died in New Orleans, in the Gulf Coast, folks who have died um, in Houston, folks who died last week who they said froze to death in their cars, folks who died a couple of months ago with the seniors who burned in their home in California, uh, children over in India who are drowning themselves because it's too hot, uh, folks, the tennis balls were melting at the Australia Open, and then now the floods this week in Australia, overwhelming. Climate change all over this globe is real. And so we're having this conversation, if you're listening, is because the environmental movement, as it was constructed, was constructed only with one major part of our community, it was now, it is mostly people who are white. And this is a human cause. It's not a white cause or a black cause or a brown cause or a straight cause or a gay cause. This is a human cause. And so the reason why this conversation, this why to you is this. The premise of this Green 2.0 report is that to better somehow with the IPCC reports, and we only got 12 years, not less than 12 years, 11 years and I think 11, uh, 11 months left. Uh, and they said 12 years in that aspect for it is uh, uh, irreversible. That what you are saying, because I want to make sure people don't get the wrong thing, that is this not about we looking for people looking for jobs. I don't I don't want people to get a sense that this is it is. There's a lot of money to fight the issue. Right. There's a lot of money to make things happen. I want to make sure that's that's wonderful. We want to thank those who are putting up their money to say, please, this is an important issue and fight it. But I want to make sure folks understand what the Green Point is saying. I want to make sure that I'm asking you now the question is that what you're saying is this is that as the makeup, and Erica kind of said this a little bit, as the makeup of the organism as it is constructed right now, meaning if you only have white people leading and running these organizations, you are missing out on on a diverse element to actually find solutions. And because the solutions are all tied and we're all in the boat, then we all will drown. And so what, just to be clear, I make sure people understand this, this is not about this, this is important because we want people to have these positions, they're qualified, we want folks who are lawyers to be in positions at, at, at folks who are doing uh, green law, whatever the case may be. But I'll make sure that they hear from you that this is about literally a solution to saving humanity. That the way that you are, you're saying that to the green groups now, the way that you are made up now, you will not find a solution as you are built. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yes. Explain that because people need to understand what that means. And why are you saying that? What, 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 why for them? Because what you're also in this report is that you're also saying that you put out a report and numbers got worse. So that in other words, you didn't put a report and say, "Wow, it, man, that's that." Now look at this. So the, the, these numbers are terrible. So let's go out here and fix. So what you're saying that you put the numbers out 2014. You've done series of of I've been a few of myself panels and and presentations. You've done all these things, and then five years, four and a half years later, 
the numbers got worse, which it seems almost impossible how you can get even to how you can get worse. But yesterday, the numbers got worse in the situation. And tell us what that means. So that means that, according to your report, then these organizations who have been who have been put in a position of leadership will then fail us because they're not becoming more diverse. Yes. And what I say is it's not just also solutions, but it's also the identification of the problem. Mm. So it's like one thing to say, like, I've got a solution to this problem. The question is, are you actually identifying the right problem? And so if you're composed in an organization that isn't diverse, you might actually identify the wrong problem. Because while climate change in big picture, yes, it is a problem. Mm-hmm. Who's most affected? Who needs to get resources first? Mm. Who needs to be at the front lines to help you determine does water need to come in first? Do you need shelter? Do you need blah, blah? If you don't have people from the community at the table, you might pick the wrong thing. And it's very simple to say like, okay, here's the thing that you need to fix it. Well, what if that's not what the community needs? Mm. So it's a question both around problem identification and then also solution identification and then implementation. Mm. And on all of those things, you can fall down and fail if you don't have the right people at the table. And it's also thinking like, we need right now some of the most innovative solutions we've never even thought of. Mm. Like if we're going to fix this in 12 years, like, you know, it gives me like heart palpitations to think like, God, we've got 12 years to figure this out. I want the best people from all over to come up with the most innovative, creative solution humanly possible. The only way to do that is with a diverse group of people. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. It's all about priority setting. And if you don't have the right folks, there's no way you'll ever be able to identify the priorities that need to be addressed. Exactly. And I would say, even if you assume that with an all white, you know, room of strategists, policymakers, excuse me, you can identify magically the right problem and the right constellation of issues, you will ultimately fall down on implementation. Mm -hmm. This is a power building issue. This is a grassroots generation issue. Mm -hmm. This is a grass top generation issue. I mean, communities of color exist at at all levels of the economic Mm -hmm. scale, right? Mm -hmm. And we are missing out on opportunities to have donors, contributors Mm -hmm. of color, people who Mm -hmm. care very much about the environment Mm -hmm. and are never approached Mm -hmm. on this issue. So it is definitely, it's it's about engagement at all levels of the community and, um, you know, assuming you start in the right place, which you can't if you don't have a diverse set of strategists at the table, there's absolutely no way that implementation succeeds without diversity. Wow. And I cut you off. Go to your question, Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> that is some good stuff y'all saying. A few mic drops in there. What has Change 2.0 done to help environmental organizations and foundations get it together? It's a great question. And when we were started, it was also thinking about how do we provide like resources. And what I mean that is I don't mean money, but I mean expertise. And so in Green 2.0's history, we've done a lot of things by providing expertise and especially diversity, equity, inclusion and justice consultants literally for free to NGOs for a period of time, whether that's a day, a half day um, to ask questions, to think about how do you do this from soup to nuts, meaning How do I change my hiring? How do I change my promotion retention? How do I change my programs to incorporate and embed equity and justice throughout my institution? And I can't even tell you the number of phone calls I've been on over the course of my time at Green 2.0, literally advising often CEOs or leaders in organizations with what search firm do I hire if I look for the next best leader? 
Who do I call if I need a consultant on this? Um, and it's a it's been a constant sort of ebb and flow. And now I think the upside is the movement has a now bench of people who can do this consulting work. And so now it's up to the movement Explain to tap that, into that. Explain that, what you mean when you say bench, people who are tuning in. Yeah. So, you know, we've had diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice consultants across the field for a while, but they're growing and there are more firms and organizations that are doing this work. And so the upside is they're now more than five or six, they're 10, 20, 15. And so if you really want to do this work as an institution, you can hire any one of them. And so go out there. I've seen more RFPs in the last three years for this kind of work. Interview people, find out what you need, um, and then go from there. But there's a way to do this and truly embed equity and justice into your institution. And so hire the expertise who are going to help you do it. Mm. Mustafa, I know we got some people calling in, and please continue to call. We're going to get to all your calls. This is a special show we have here on Think 1%, the coolest show on climate change on the night of the City of the Union, the state of the climate movement. Mustafa, before we get to the calls, though, I kind of need you to actually to say this for the people, and I'm actually to, to kind of get this framework. For those who are listening to this show who are thinking that, man, this is so hard a conversation. Why can't we just discuss not Green 2.0, but the Green New Deal? Um, so this we can just move forward. I, I get that. So explain to them why this conversation is important to be had. Well, as we've said before, we cannot win on climate change if we are not truly beginning to better embrace and integrate uh, diversity into the organizations who are supposed to be focused on this. This is this is not a new conversation. The environmental justice movement started because the green movement did not have a space for them. You know, folks were well-meaning in the sense of focusing on polar bears. Mustafa, you can't say that kind of stuff. <laughs> well, well I'm I, sorry. You yes, got I to explain when you say. Cause I know, I know, you have like Dr. Hollis on on the wings, where they leap all in this conversation, y'all. So stay tuned, y'all. Right. Dr. Doors at the Hollis, we we gonna keep this thing rocking and yeah. rolling. Yes, but yes, when yes. you say that the EJ movement, there was no space for them within the larger big green. You need to explain what that means. Well, yes, that there there literally was no space for them. Folks did. They wanted to focus on conservation. No room in the end space? There was no room at the end. Just like when Jesus was coming, he needed a place <laughs> to be able to, <laughs> to make everything happen. And, you know, we're hoping and the great work of Green 2.0 and others that the movement will evolve, mm. that it will understand the value that having all kinds of different folks from different experiences brings. The most successful businesses realize that, and that's a part of their uh, structure. Um, if they truly want to be able to touch everybody, want to be able to make sure that they're connecting with folks, uh, garnering that new information. But let me go back just real quickly and, and sort of sum this up. So the environmental justice leaders in the late 80s, sent a letter out to all the green groups talking about these issues. One, talking about their focuses. They were talking about the lack of diversity, and they were also talking about, because when we know there is a lack of diversity, there's also a lack of the flow of resources to the organizations who are actually doing the work. Mm. So if you are not focusing on those impacts that are happening in the Manchester community, that are happening in Port Arthur, Texas, that were happening uh, by the work that WEAC was doing in Manhattan or the work that uh, Elizabeth Yampierre and Uprose has been doing in Brooklyn, or we can go around the country, or you won't understand the dynamics of what's happening at Standing Rock if you don't honor diversity and have individuals who can explain to you and help you to prioritize these issues that help us to win. 
So real quickly, in the last 15 seconds, you can't win on climate change if you're not addressing the communities where the fossil fuel facilities have been located for decades and have been saying we're getting polluted. And now that pollution is warming up the planet. Mm. So all of this is connected. We've got a chance to win, but we've got to grow up. We have got to understand that we got to fill these these gaps that we have in the process because the fight that is ahead of us is one, as you say, Rev, is focusing on literally our existence. That's right. So we can win, but folks are going to have to be willing to share power. Yeah. And I'll stop right there. No, they will be. You preaching today? Real talk. Listen, listen. We, if you are, we have a, we don't have the lines are filling up. Um, if you want to get in, into this conversation, uh, please call two zero two five eight eight zero eight nine three. That's two zero two. Five eight eight zero eight nine three. Yeah, so Rev, we have got Mr. Brown from Maryland who's on the line. Mr. Brown, are you there? Hello? Yes, Mr. Brown, you're on the line. Go ahead. Yes, sir. Uh, I listen to your program quite uh, frequently, and uh, it seems to me the biggest problem is you have people that government, uh, people elect people to represent them, represent the, the fossil fuel uh, industry, and it's all about money. You know, until you deal with that, you're still going to be sitting here crying in the wilderness about the environment and everything else. Because that's who the corporate people, you know, you're supposed to keep those people in check. If they're not being kept in check, you're going to have a problem. Mm. It's about money, you know. <laughs> they won't care about the proof they had. so I can make this buck. I don't have to clean it up. Nobody's going to make me clean it up. You understand what I'm saying? No, I definitely do. So I'm actually let Erica and Whitney kind of chime in. So this the car is a great point because we, we talked you talked earlier about the money in the movement, but also the, the money in the industry. So does the, and the countless pit, does the movement, as it's now constructed, feel that it doesn't have time to slow down, that it has to almost compete head-to-head to counter that? What are your, what's your kind of for this caller? So this is why diversity in the environmental movement is important, because environmental NGOs engage in political activity. Mm. They have 501c4s that run political advocacy campaigns. Mm -hmm. They have political action committees that give money directly to political candidates. And so if you are looking to defeat candidates who oppose environmental measures and you're looking to defeat the friends of oil and gas companies, then you need to understand fundamentally how to spend your political dollars in a way that contacts voters on the ground who can elect candidates, candidates of color who care about the environment. Right. So it is absolutely the the political tie-in is huge, and we have seen, particularly in recent years, people start to understand and reckon with the power of the base of, in particular, the Democratic Party, right, and the power that voters of color have to deliver. If we did not have, um, you know, sort of that understanding and that reckoning taking place, we wouldn't have Stacey Abrams giving mm. the response to the State of the Union tonight. Mm-hmm. It took her as a black woman to show the country that Georgia is politically viable for Democrats. A party, a state party, and a national party that aren't diverse didn't make space for a Stacey Abrams before 2018. She created that space herself over four, well, four active years, many years of very diligent work to put that state in play. Unfortunately, we don't have an environmentally friendly governor in the state of Georgia today, but environmental organizations should take heed and take note that that state is an option for us, just like any state is, if we're willing to invest in communities of color and be and have people of color internal in our organizations 
and is part of our plans and our political advocacy. Yes, definitely. Mm. So, Mr. Brown, we want to thank you for our co- for your call. We're going to move forward, and we have Rev in Pennsylvania. Rev, are you on the line? Yes, I am. Welcome to the show. Yes, thank you, Brother Mustafa. What's your question, uh, Reverend Woodbury? Yes, my question is in light of the state of the emergency when it comes to our climate, and everyone moving forward, trying to put together a Green New Deal or some other kind of state legislation, but particularly around federal policy. How can we ensure that once the policy is written, once money has been allocated, how can we be assured that the usual suspects, talking about the utilities, et cetera, that they are not going to belly up uh, to that legislation like hogs to a trough and grab all the money and still leave communities behind and out that leave them behind and in the wake of other destruction and, and disaster. So what I think is really important as we, we look at the state of the climate and what we can do is how can we have some assurances that it will not be business as usual. Mm-hmm. I think Whitney wanted to take a little bite of that. Yeah, no, I, it's an excellent question. And we've seen some examples of where this can be addressed in like California, Washington State, and Oregon most recently, which is when you actually craft the legislation, how do you put in specific pieces around where the money goes? Mm-hmm. And I think that's an important key piece of also federal legislation if we're going to go forward with the Green New Deal, which is does there need to be specific carve-outs for both communities of color, minority-owned businesses, um, renewable energies. You can do it. The question is, do we have the political will to do it? Um, And for me, that's really more the question than anything else. And hopefully with this new Congress and a lot of new people, especially of color and women, this is going to be a priority for them. How do we have women-owned businesses who get a good chunk of this money? How do we hold people accountable to actually making sure that the dollars actually go to those? But I think for me, that's where the where the rubber can meet the road. You got to put it in legislation because um, otherwise, we know through process and rulemaking and other things, it might not actually get to where you want it to be. Well, let me follow with that a little bit on that because on here on Think One Percent, the course on climate change, uh, one of the things uh, we have a lot of people who are just coming into this movement. That's why we love this show. Um, we have a lot of young people who listen to this show. Um, so I kind of, when you mentioned 1P, I want to make sure people understand um, when you said when they're carving out. So here in D.C., before listening to where we actually tape this show in Washington, D.C., because there's folks all over the country who listen to this show. But in D.C., D.C. actually just passed one of the most radical, uh, most important conversations in, mm-hmm. in the country. Um, and we appreciate that immensely. Um, but when you mentioned the part about carving out, because it's a key part there, that one of the things, let's kind of back to Erica's point, was that the reason why it's so important to have diversity is because certain folks from certain communities can connect the dots. And we talk about carving, you're talking about how legislation, particularly in some aspects, can help other people in communities. Can you just explain that more for those who are listening? Sure. And one of the ways is thinking about, you know, if you just leave it open, obviously the people who have the greatest access or the greatest amount of dollars will influence the legislation. So we see this in money and politics right now. But if you want to actually change that narrative and really incorporate equity and justice, then in the legislation you'd say, well, half of that money 
needs to go to people who run businesses who are focused on renewable energy and or run by women or people of color. Imagine what the impact could be both to those communities, increasing the jobs in those communities, but also getting the outcomes we want, which is helping to save the climate. Mm. And so when you think about the legislation, there are ways to actually put in place specifics around where the money goes and who it goes to. And that, yes. So, you know, Rev, thank you for that question. Uh, thank you for your call. We really appreciate you. And we're now going to move on to David. Uh, David Allen. Yes. Welcome to the show. What's your question? Uh, I would like to know, uh, three months ago, I went to a show, an energy show, at the um, foot of the monument. And they had a big tin up. And they had these um, wood-burning stoves in there. And the wood-burning stoves were energy efficient. And I noticed that there was no district or district citizens in this show. They were all rural area people from Virginia and Maryland and further out. And I asked them, where was the news people? Why wasn't there no news reporters reporting this? And they said they were... They invited them, but they didn't come. But the district has an office for energy downtown. And, and I went in there and asked them, why don't, well, what's the reason you don't put this to the district as far as removing um, gas furnaces and putting in wood burners? No pellets. Yes. And they, they were running the car off of this. All right. Well, uh, uh, David, thank you. Thank you for your um, for your call and, and the question. Uh, we're, we're just going to put you on mute for a second because uh, we've got some background noise going on. But let's just share this real quickly, that anytime you are burning wood uh, or pellets, that is not clean and renewable energy. So we want to make sure that we're creating the opportunities to be able to move folks to uh, solar and wind and those things that will not release gases that will, of course, warm up our planet. But thank you for that. Um, yes, in many instances also, it's more rural communities that are taking advantage of that. Uh, and we want to make sure that we're creating the opportunities uh, so that they also can be linked up to clean and renewable energy. So with that, we're going to move on to Don. We have a caller. Don, are you on the line? Welcome to Think 100%, the coolest show on climate change. Uh, hi, my name is Dawn. I'm from Maryland, and uh, it just breaks my heart to hear that you don't feel welcome. Uh, I want you to know that my mom's environmental group, where Beyond Extreme Energy, yeah, um, is very different. They they had a black woman sing yeah, a spiritual inspired uh, protest song. Uh, there actually, she led more than one song. Uh, if that helps at all. Wow. Yeah, Don, thank you so much. And I'd say, <clears throat> you know, part of that, I think you're getting to a sort of fundamental point around inclusion and belonging. And that's, I think, one of the challenges often in these organizations is do they truly create the sense of welcome and belonging for people of mm-hmm. color when they enter the workforce and when they enter these organizations? And, you know, I've worked for a couple of organizations and I have felt welcome. But it takes effort and energy to truly become an organization that is inclusive for all, no matter where you come from or who you are. And that requires 
culture change for a lot of these institutions who've been built, you know, really focused on one group of people, mm-hmm. largely whites. And so it's one of the things that, you know, as Green 2.0 will continue to push for, which is how do you truly create a culture where everyone is welcome? Because mm-hmm. that's also how you get your best ideas and your best thinking. Yeah. And, you know, I'm delighted that there's a spiritual for black women on, you know, clean energy. But yeah. we need more things like that for everyone yeah. um, so that everyone can be involved and be included. Yeah. Don, thank you so much for that call. Erica, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? Uh, no, I, I think Whitney, Whitney did, a, did the job. Thank you. <laughs> right. Well, thank you, Don, again. And well, let me follow up to that. Yes. Um, I think so. I actually think I was at that rally <laughs> that, that, that Don is talking about. So I think, I think that's the thing. No, and I think actually that was Peggy, Peggy Shepard was mm-hmm. actually the one who was actually singing at that rally. I'm pretty sure. I think there was a rally at FERC. And I know beyond extreme energy and that's, you know, uh, you know, being out there. So you're right. The organization and many organizations. So Don, you actually bring up a very good point. I think I just wanted to bring. So Don, actually, you could almost feel the pain, right? Mm -hmm. In her voice, you could feel the pain because what she started off by saying was, man, I'm so sorry that you don't feel welcome. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I, and I don't know Don, um, but I'm assuming just from listening to Dawn, that Dawn is not going to make that comment or call in to the show. Thank you, Dawn, for being a, a, a listener to Think 100%. Um, but I'm assuming that you really feel, which is true, and this is the case, that people of color don't feel welcome. Let's go to the flip side, because I know for I'm talking to many people who have gone to organizations um, that it's also about sometimes optics and that sometimes it's about tokenism. And so let's deal with that, too, as well, because on the flip side to that, I do know that a lot of folks who are black, red, yellow, uh, brown, uh, people of color go to organizations and then they don't last there too long. They feel terribly uncomfortable. And so speak to that side, because one thing um, I talked to, I talked to uh, a big green um, uh, uh, leader about the report, because I was, you know, I said, wow, we got worse. And he mentioned that there's ebbs and flows about how sometimes the hiring process goes up and down. That's, you know, which is fine. But what I'm saying to you is that, speak to the other side of this, are you also sending people of color into a hostile work environment? Is that, do you have, I mean, how do you feel? I mean, on the one that, yes, you want people to be a part because I mean, the rest of them want to solve the issue, but then are you sending people into, into an environment that is actually hostile to people of color because people don't understand them and then they actually don't appreciate what's coming. So, Whitney, Eric? It's an important point. Go ahead. And I think what it means is a couple of things. Like, as a person who went to this movement who was originally, I think, maybe one of two people of color (laughs) in the program to which I worked, that it was a recognition of also both for myself, where do I want to be in this role? Mm. And then also is the organization ready for me? So it's a both and. It's not only do I feel like I am the only one and what does that feel like? And how do we create support networks for people to be able to do this work? But also how is the organization ready? Because in the end, it's the organization's responsibility. Like if you're going to bring somebody in, you need to give them the support. Mm. So how do you build that in from the beginning of the hiring process all the way through to onboarding, all the way through to promotion retention. And so it's a responsibility of all these organizations. You've done it for other people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's not a question of has it not been done? <laughs> right. It's that you need to reframe it 
to be inclusive. And tokenism will continue, I think, to be a, a challenge for these organizations as they build up to have a majority people of color. Um, but it's also then having an honest conversation, being like, we recognize you might be one of two. Mm. How do we support you in that? I've had experiences where I've got organizations who don't even know what to do when something happens to that person of color and they just stand there and look and say, we don't know how to help you. Mm. But it's like, th that's not an answer anymore. Mm -hmm. The answer is, okay, how do then we support you in your journey knowing that we might not have all the answers, but how do we construct a support network for you or have outside experts who can help and support you? And that's the responsibility of an organization. It's your employee. You want that person to be here. You want that person to have a sense of belonging. And so it's also a responsibility of the organization to provide those kind of resources and support. Mm -hmm. So, Rev, I think we have one last caller that we're going to be able to take for this show. Uh, Clara from Detroit. Well, not for this show. For those who are tuning in, this is a special. <laughs> for the first half. Yeah, of yeah. This is a special <laughs> two hours. But this is a very important conversation that we're having on the Civil Climate Movement. So I will make sure, please. But this was uh, Mustafa. Yes. Yeah, so uh, Clara from Detroit, from the D. Mm -hmm. Clara, are you there? Yes, I am. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, what's your question? So I work for Citizens Climate Lobby, which is a mm -hmm. national non nonprofit grassroots organization that works on climate change. And we um, engage members to advocate for carbon pricing. Um, and we are looking at building a diversity initiative right now. Um, and when I talk to our staff and our members about this, a lot of them say, yeah, we're inclusive. We welcome everybody. You know, our philosophy is, is approaching everyone with, with respect and gratitude, and we want everybody in this movement. Um, but the reality is most of the people in the organization are white, like 90%. And I'm, I'm not just talking about the staff, but really our, our members, because they're the ones who are volunteering and advocating and lobbying and all that. And it's, it's very difficult for us to get diversity in that. So I'm just wondering what, how you would um, respond to that and what advice you might have. Well, we have two, yeah, we got two experts here who can handle that. <laughs> so I, speaking as Erica from Detroit, I have to ask, um, the organizing that you do, I assume, has a local aspect to it, right? So you're located in Detroit and you, you are organizing yeah. there as well? Okay. So yeah, one of the things... Oh, go ahead. Oh, we have um, over 500 chapters all over the country. Right. Okay. So one of the things that I would say to people locally in your organization is if anywhere in America, people of color should be represented in an organization, it is in Detroit, right? Which is a city that is better than at this point, I think even with some population changes recently, better than 85% black, right? So yeah. so a 90% white organization will not do, right? So there just has to be, and th this is a conversation around city, Detroit specifically, but cities all over this country. We're at a place now where we just have to have really honest conversations about what where we're trying to go, who we're trying to include, and what we look like. And I think you know, with love, you can always say we are not best positioned to represent the community that we say we represent. And um, mm -hmm. I think it just starts with a very mm -hmm. foundational, mm -hmm. honest uh, conversation in the family, just like that. Um, that's just sort of where I'd start. Yeah. And then it's thinking about, you know, where are you going to recruit your volunteers and your members? You know, are you truly thinking expansively about what the options actually are? Are you going to churches? 
Are you going to community groups? Are you going to schools? Are you going to, you know, like really map out what are all your gaps and say, how do you then build a relationship with those knowing that you often need to show up without an agenda? And that's often the hardest thing. Yeah, you might want to say, say that, that one more time. <laughs> Go yeah. without an agenda. I know it sounds crazy, right? Because we like like having our agendas with times and dates and what we're going to accomplish. But sometimes you need to show up in a community and hear what their issues are and then figure out what the alignment is. And so often it's saying I am willing to dedicate some of my staff time and my resources to going and just building a relationship without a direct outcome in the moment, but hopefully looking for a longer term relationship that will truly be deep, authentic, and honest to really build then what can we collaborate on together. That takes a level of investment and a level of quote unquote risk mm. that really turns into an incredible reward at the back end. Man, so listen, folks. I mean, we are just getting started. I actually, Antonique, I'm going to come to you um, for, I want you to kind of, this is this first part of the state of the climate movement. And if you're, if you, you want to call in, please do at 202 You'll be on the back end for the next set of calls, though. But I'm so glad that we had a, this show is a two-parter. So, Antonique. Please, uh, you, have, you have a question um, for uh, Whitney and Erica? Yes. How do we win on climate change if the organizations who are responsible for funding and some of the work are so resistant to change? And how do we get equality and funding and leadership that supports people of color in the front, in the frontline communities? Wow. So, yeah, funding is a is a critical issue and it will continue to be one for a while. And there are some foundations that are actually making really demonstrable changes, which is really remarkable to see. But what it takes often is having more people of color in foundations to say these communities need the resources. Uh It's also getting foundations to rethink. I remember a call we did recently, Erica, where somebody's like, we work in strategic philanthropy. And it was sort of the excuse for like not giving money to smaller institutions. And I was like, "But, but a small, what you'd consider a small grant could transform that organization overnight. Mm. And so Mm. in part, it's breaking also the mold around where philanthropy needs to be because you might build what might be the next organization. Mm -hmm. And so it's in part saying as a funder, yes, I might be engaged in strategic philanthropy, but my strategic philanthropy needs to include the full range of what's engaged in the climate movement. So how do Uh I make sure that voices of smaller organizations like we act and other have a seat at the table. That means they need another hundred, two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars to do that. Or two, uh-huh. two, three million. Let's right. say, I mean, Absolutely. Hey. Please, yes, hey. go big. Hey. Go big or go home, right? <laughs> you know? Listen, folks, we're not finished. For folks who want to find you for the report, how do they do that? Yeah, so we're at diversegreen.org or at diversegreen on Twitter as well and Facebook. Stay tuned, folks. This is the first part. We just finished the first part. We'll be right back with the second part of the state of the climate movement. Anthony, give us some song. We'll break this part open. Here comes the sun, little darling. Here comes the sun. And I say, it's all right. Big 100, 
thanks for joining us this week on Think 100%, the coolest show on climate change, a hip-hop caucus platform. Let's keep this important dialogue going. Be a part of the conversation by following us on social media at Think 100 Show and at Hip Hop Caucus. Visit our website at think100.info for blog content, information on upcoming events, or to connect with us. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes so you'll never miss an episode. Rate and review us or simply tell a friend. Climate change impacts all of us, and if we think 100%, we can achieve a 100% sustainable and just world together. 